Hallelujah. That's a little loud. Lord, have your way. We worship you in this place, Lord, and we just say, have your way tonight in this place. We surrender. We surrender to you and just let us leave this place filled and overflowing much more than when we walked in the door, Lord. We surrender to you and we give this night to you. We just worship and praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. That was a good one, Jeremy. That was really good. Thank you. Um, one thing I saw in that video, I'm going to have to watch it again. I think I saw a French horn player. And ba- and and cello. And like, what was up with that? I'm loving, I got to watch that again. Because I played French horn in the band. And I've never seen a French horn player like in a real, like that kind of band. We saw a good French horn player last night, though, didn't we, Wendy? Get out of that light. Well, I'm just going to sit on this stool and we're just going to talk tonight. Is that okay? Because um, I know some of you guys have had a hard time lately. I know I have. It felt It's just been feeling like the last two weeks. It's just like a lot of stuff going on. Graduation and Prom, yeah, prom and, and, you know, of course, church and work and mo- Mother's Day. It just has been this, like, yard sale and then the night of worship and lots of things for me to plan. And I know I, I hear from you guys and, Laurel, I know you're going through a thing and and who in here is not going through a thing? It's just I could name everyone's thing. And... um You know, we just go through these things and get caught up in the thing and the mess and the stuff and Japan and, you know, and just stuff. And anyway, I just wanted to sit tonight and just talk about some stuff that I've been kind of just writing down. I don't really have a message. Is that okay? (laughs) Sorry. Um, I kind of do, but... I really just felt like just kind of sharing what is on my heart um, and what's happening and and know that I know that you guys are going through some things too. And uh, it's not bad. I mean, I'm not like being sad. Nothing terrible has happened. It's just life, you know. It just gets to you. And so I've just been thinking, um, going, you know, get up in the morning, go, 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 go till midnight, and you just flop down, and then that's bedtime, and then you get up and do it again. And I'm like, what? Why? Why are we doing this? Like, why? What is the point of all this? You know, what is the eternal good of what we're doing every day? And um, one one day I want to do like a a study of. Uh, maybe Kevin can help with this. I know Alan can, but um, on a Wednesday night, maybe several weeks, and do just a teaching of the, the end days and, like, the second coming of Christ and kind of lay that all out, the judgment seat. And and I love um, learning and te- talking about heaven. And, you know, you can you can talk about revelations and, and the things that are going to happen. And some of that... It's good to know, but it doesn't. It's not relevant to us. We won't be here. 
but the second coming, we'll all be here, or we'll, we'll be there. We'll either be here, like if Jesus came right now, we'd be in this body when he came. But if we died tonight and he came back tomorrow, we'd be in that other body. One way or the other, we're going to be there. So it's just, to me, it's interesting to study that and, and study about heaven. And even though we can't really say every detail about what it's going to be like, there are lots of clues, and it's just fun to study that. So I want to do that sometime. Um, but I just want to, I want to give you a little Bible lesson, I guess. Here we go. We, we say these terms like the bride of Christ. When we talk about the second coming and, and the, you know, heaven and the judgment seat, we talk about, we say these churchy words, and one of them is like the bride of Christ. And, and I just... Um, I think about uh, the church being the bride of Christ and how that looks from a natural standpoint. Like in the Bible days when there was a wedding coming, the bride was prepared before, probably before she even met the guy. Um, a lot of times it was, or it was prearranged. There was a dowry paid and then the, to be husband would go and prepare a place. And that's totally a type of um, what's going to happen with us, with the church and with Jesus. Um, but before the wedding, there's the judgment seat. And I, I, I've been hearing a lot about that lately. And, and it's where the judgment seat is where our works will be judged. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. You won't stand before God and he say, you're in and you're out. And, you know, it's not like that. It's where, it's where your earthly works will be judged. And um, I was just thinking about how um, when, you, when you are in the presence of God and he is, you're going through that period of judgment, it's for the uh, refining of the trash and what will withstand the fire. Um, and so the point of the judgment seat is to burn up all the junk and get it, get it away because it can't stand in the presence of God, and you're only left with that that is pleasing to God and that, that which can pass through that judgment fire. And it's, it says basically that the, the judgment fire burns away the trash, and what you're left with is the righteousness and that's where you get the term, the robes of righteousness. At the judgment seat, you'll be judged for your works. And those things that are not worthy to pass through the fire will be burned away. And what you're left with are the things that you, you did that were worthy to pass the fire. Does that make sense? And that's the thing that you'll wear to the wedding. The righteousnesses, the righteousnesses, that are worthy to pass through that fire, that's your wedding garment. That's your, uh, the, the robes of righteousness are those things that pass the fire. And um, I was thinking that some people's um, robes might be a little thin. Like, I hope mine are, um, I hope I'm covered well. Um, but um, I was just wondering, like, what, what types of works, we start thinking about all the things that we do and we get up and we work and we work and we work, but it's not, it's not really work, it's works of the, of the things that you do unto the Lord. 
Like, what kind of things might pass through the fire? I, I want you to shout it out. Like, what? Because I really want to know. Like, what types of things are worthy to pass, pass the judgment fire? Love. Yep. Love. Pure love. Peace. Joy. Uh, yeah, all those, uh, all those patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. Yeah. All those, but that, you know, love how? Yeah, unconditional love, I would say, yeah. Um, the things that pass through the fire are the things that, that we do that are um, pleasing unto the Lord and done with a pure heart, that are not done for show. Uh, you may give to a missionary but if you just give just for the sake of giving or so that somebody can see how much you give, that's not worthy to pass the fire. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I think even small things like um, sacrificing your personal desires to work hard and provide for your family, I think that's something that will pass the, the fire. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a form of sacrificial love. So I'm really curious to see, like, when I get there, what things actually pass the fire. And I want to study that out. I want to do some more studying. That's not what I'm talking about tonight, by the way. I'm just, I don't know. I'm going to get on some rabbit trails tonight. But what, I, what I'm getting at is the things that we do in our busy, busy day, running here, running there, and, you know, taking the kids and, buying the groceries and going to work and helping these folks and picking up yard sale stuff and all of the stuff that we do, in the middle of all that, are we aware of, of our works and the things that we'll be judged for and our heart and our commitment and our level of excitement to do what God wants us to do? And that's just kind of what I've been thinking about. So I'm going gonna, um, gonna to read this scripture and then we'll get to it revelation we're in revelation 3 14 through 22 write this letter and this is jesus's letter to the church at laodicea or laodicea or laodicea or however you want to pronounce it we weren't there we don't know how they said it but i'm going to say laodicea because that's how i've always said it Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is a message from the one who is the, a, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, and I have everything that I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that's been purified by fire, and then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you'll not be shamed by your nakedness, and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. 
If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Okay? So that's one of the letters that was written to one of the seven churches uh, that Kevin talked about three weeks ago or so. I'm not sure how long ago. I think it was your blueprint message, and you, he mentioned this. And when, he was, when Kevin was given that message, and he got to the church of Laodicea, and he mentioned about the lukewarm church, I didn't hear anything he said past that. Sorry, Kevin, I'll have to listen to the podcast. But when he said that, I couldn't get past that. I couldn't get past the church being lukewarm. And so that's what I've been thinking about for since that night, the past three weeks. I just can't get past the church being lukewarm. And I just want to talk about that tonight. And this is not a personal thing. This is the church as a whole. It's where we are. Um, and I, I, I guess I'm supposed to talk about it. So, because um, we're living in the Laodicean church era now, according to scholars and the way that the the, the different letters are addressed, it is mostly agreed on that the the letter to the Laodicean church is today's church. So it's uh, representative of the current church age. In Jesus' writing to the other six, six churches, he found at least one good thing to say about those other six, but he couldn't find anything good to say about this church. He just, there was nothing good to say. And that's a little disturbing because that's us today. And he couldn't find one good thing to say. So I'm going to give you a little background on the city of Laodicea. It was founded by a guy named Antiochus II sometime around 253 B.C. So it's an ancient city. He named it after his wife, Laodicea. The city was located on a high plateau, and it was very secure from its enemies. It had one problem. And that was that there was no source of water in the city. And their water had to be piped in through these aqueducts that they have found, archaeologists have found. Uh, Some of them were made out of like bamboo type stuff, but most of them were stone that were drilled through and it was like a stone aqueduct. The, uh, The city of... Hierapolis, I guess it's pronounced, was about six miles away, and there was a hot spring there. Very plentiful water, but it was a hot spring. So they piped in water from this hot spring down to Laodicea. There was also a cool spring in Colossia, which was about 10 miles away. So they piped in water from there, too. They had hot water coming in, and they had cold water coming in. We're going to talk a little bit more about that water here in a few minutes, but I want to give you some more about the city. It was a wealthy city. They built theaters and stadiums, and they had lavish public baths that they have found 
remnant of. Fabulous shopping centers. Sounds like New York City, right? Or Atlanta. Sounds like a modern city. It was. It was very wealthy. So wealthy that in 60 AD, there was an earthquake that basically leveled the city. And the governors of Rome, I guess would have been Caesar, sent a message that said, well, we'll send you some money to help you rebuild the city. And they said, no, we're very wealthy here. We've got this. They refused any money from the Roman government to rebuild their city. That's how arrogant they were. So it was a great place to live. Like, you couldn't get real estate there. It was, it was very expensive to live there. The city was famous for three characteristics. Number one, their finances. Uh, they were a central location for banking. And they were known as a wealth and financial power throughout all of Rome. They were known for their fashion. They produced this soft black wool cloth. I don't know what it would be similar to today, but it was it was very luxurious and and well sought after uh, to make clothing and rugs and things like that. And it was the only place that you could get this black material. And then they were also known for their medicines. Uh, There was a medical school in Laodicea, and one of the things they were most well-known for was this. They would make a tablet, and you could put a little water on it and make a paste out of it and put it in your eyes. It was an eye ointment. So if you think back at the verse we just read, it mentions those three things. This is Jesus writing the letter mentioning the three things that the city is most well-known for. But he's taking the things that they are so earthly bound about and he's turning them into a, a turning them back to himself so what in the world would make jesus say i want to vomit you out like i wish you were hot or cold you make me want to vomit seems like it was a great place to be but he said i want to throw up It says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Jesus tells them that the water in the city had become lukewarm. So remember the the aqueducts. Coming from one city, it was hot water running six miles. By the time it got to the Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And that nice cold water that was coming from Colossia, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So they had nasty water all the time. Have you ever drank nasty, hot, like lukewarm water? You leave a bottle of water in your car and you get out and you go somewhere and work out and then you jump in your car, so thirsty, you take a big, and it's, you know, lukewarm, nasty water. That's what they had all the time. Jesus was saying that He desired that they be hot or cold. He said their spiritual condition was of no benefit. And he'd rather they be beneficial one way or the other. Even hot water is beneficial for bathing and for making a hot tea or for refining something. And cold water is soothing and refreshing. 
And they were neither one. They were just this in the middle thing. And his reference is really about the church as a whole just being kind of non-caring, just stuck in the middle, not hot, not cold, not dead, just lukewarm. And so spiritually speaking, the Laodicean church can be summed up in this one word, I think. It's they were the whatever church. They were kind of just whatever. This was kind of their attitude about spiritual things. Oh, whatever. They'd become so lukewarm, they'd lost their passion for the Lord. They'd become indifferent and apathetic, and they were just going through the motions. They were unmoved by anything that the Lord was doing around them. They didn't even really care that, or notice or remember that Jesus had died on the cross and the works of God from the past and not even really caring about the uh, condition of the people around them. You know, you're lost, oh well, sorry. You should get to know Jesus. That was kind of their attitude. And that condition made Jesus sick, made him want to throw up. I found... um, some examples of lukewarm people that Francis Chan wrote. I want to read some of those. It says, y'all are just hearing my notes because this is stuff I just write down. So it's not really my message. I'm just reading you my notes and things that I write down. Um, he says, number one, lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly because it's what's expected of them and, and what they believe good Christians do, and so they just do it. So y'all tell me if you know people like this or if you are this person, I'm coming after you. I don't really think that you guys are this person, but this is the church as a whole and what it's become. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. They have a little extra, it's easy to give and it's safe and, and they do. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Number three, lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They desire to fit in both at church and outside the church. They care more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their heart and their lives. They're more concerned about people around them than the God that's in them. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They enjoy what they're doing, but they don't want to be punished for it. They don't genuinely hate sin, and they aren't truly sorry for it. They're merely sorry because God's going to punish them. Lukewarm people are moved by by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, and yet they do nothing. They assume such action is just for those extreme Christians, not average people. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expects all of us to do. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors and their co-workers and their friends. They don't want to be rejected. They don't want to feel uncomfortable by talking about private things like religion. 
Lukewarm people gauge their morality or their goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. They feel satisfied that while they aren't as hardcore for Jesus as so-and-so, they're nowhere near as horrible as that other guy down the street. You see that middle-of-the-road thing, that lukewarmness? Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their lives, like their time and money and thought, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. Lukewarm people love God, but they do not love him with all their heart and soul and strength. They'd be quick to assure you that they try to love God as much, but that that sort of total devotion isn't really possible for the average person. That's only for pastors and missionaries and radical people. And I've heard people say that they, they tell their children, now, when you grow up, you know, we don't want you to be an atheist, but don't be one of those radical people either. You know, find the middle ground and, and just be just good enough. Lukewarm people love others, but do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. They love others. Their love of others is typically focused on those who love them in return, like their family and their friends and and other people that they can connect with. There's little love left over for those who cannot love them back, much less for those who intentionally slight them. Love, um, Laurel, talking about love. Lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits to how far or how much time and money and energy that they're willing to give. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do list and the week's schedule and next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, they intentionally consider the life that's to come. Lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and their comforts, and they rarely consider trying to give as much as possible to the poor. They are quick to point out, Jesus never said that money is the root of all evil. It's just the love of money. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. They want to do the bare minimum to be just good enough without it requiring too much of them they ask, just how far can I go before it's considered a sin? Instead of, how can I keep myself pure as the temple of the Holy Spirit? They ask, how much do I have to give? Instead of, how much can I give? How much time do I need to spend praying and reading my Bible? Instead of, I wish I didn't have to stop reading and go to work or school. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe and they are slaves to the God of whatever controls them. Lukewarm people feel secure because they attend church and they made a profession of faith at the age of 12 and they were baptized and they came from a Christian family and they vote Republican and they live in America. But just as the prophet of the Old Testament warned Israel, they're not safe just because they lived in the land of Israel. So we're not safe just because we wear a Christian label and because some people call us a Christian nation. 
Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they don't they never have to. They don't have to trust God for something unexpected. They have money in their savings account for that. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan. They don't genuinely seek out what God what life God would have them to live. They've got it all figured out and mapped out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerator's full, and for the most part, they're in pretty good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly just stopped believing in God. Lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than the average, but besides that, they aren't really different from your typical unbeliever. Uh Uh-oh. They equate their partial, sanitized life with holiness, but they couldn't be more wrong. Wow. I hope that's not me. I hope that's not you. I don't think it is. It sounds pretty harsh, but that's exactly what Jesus encountered at Laodicea. Church people in our day are no longer moved by the cross. They're not moved by a move of God in the church or what God can do in their lives. They're just sitting there unmoved. And they know that there's lost people all around them, probably at their school, at their work, and they say, that's so terrible, I wish they'd get saved, and they don't do anything about it. They never offer any help to that person. The average church in our day is a study of apathy, this says. They're not exactly dead because they're praying and preaching and singing, but they're not exactly on fire either. There's no excitement, no passion about who they serve and what they hear and what they're doing. They're somewhere in the middle of the road, and that's where the modern church is. People come in in our church, in our church, and they take their seat and they fold their arms and they say, bless me if you can. Let me see what I can get today. And they never feel the need to go to the altar and pray or ask for help. They never feel the need to testify to the good things that God's doing in their lives. And they never feel the need to do anything but just come and go. And I just want to say this. What I'm reading to you, from this is from my notes and things I write down. It might be kind of hard to hear. It's kind of harsh hearing me say it. But um, I just, I see a lot of uh, what was happening in the Laodicean church and what was in this letter happening in our church and the church as a whole. And um, when scholars say that the the Laodicean church is the modern church, I can see that. Like, I can see it. It's probably not Lourdes individually because, you know, there's nothing lukewarm about her. I'm just going to say. She's about as fiery hot as they can get. But Lord, is, her, her actions reflect that, that fire, not just in this building, but 
at her job and in her daily life and in her passions and in her prayer and just there's never a moment that she's not praying or thinking about the goodness of God. I mean, I've been around her enough to know. I'm not, I'm not telling a lie. Like, she's 100% all fire. There's just so many. And, and, and most of you guys are. All of you, probably, I'm looking around. Yeah. But I just see such a lukewarmness around us a lot of times. Uh, we get outside this building, and, and it's especially lukewarm. And there's people that are just... They do their thing in here, and then they go out there and do another thing. And that makes Jesus want to throw up. It makes him want to vomit. And I don't want us to be that way. I, don't, I want to see passion when we worship on Sunday morning, or even to a video on Wednesday night, or whenever. I want to see passion. I, want to, I stood up there, and that's the first time I've done that, by the way, if y'all were here. And um, and you know me, I'm all in it over there, and so forgive me, but I'm just going to be like John the Baptist and be all crazy-fied, you know. Um, I want to see some more of that, though. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was in that position to be able to see out instead of see up, and it was interesting to see, um, I felt, a lukewarmness in this room, and I don't want that. I want passion in here. I want fire in here. Um, I want to see a fire for witnessing outside of this place. I want people to come back here and say, you won't believe it. Lourdes does this. You won't believe it. I told somebody about Jesus, and they prayed, and, and, and they accepted Jesus in their heart. Like, that should be, like, something that we could just have testimony night, and ten people come up and tell that, you know? Everybody. That's where we need to be. I just want people so excited and so full of the goodness of God that it just pours out of them, not just in church, but in their, in their whole life. Um, anyway, Jesus said something very redeeming at the end of that verse. He said, I stand at the door and knock. That was the first thing he said. And that was his way out for the Laodicean church. He was giving them a way out. He was saying, here's all you have to do. I stand at the door and knock. It was his effort to give them an opening to come back. And really the way it reads, if you read it the right way, it says, behold, I am continually standing at the door and I'm continually knocking on this door. He's never, ever going to give up never going to stop knocking. And then it says, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, it says, if any man, he doesn't need like the whole church all at once to come barring through the door. That'd be pretty cool. But he says, just any man, if one person would just turn from, from their way of living a lukewarm life and turn back and and get that fire. He says, if any one man hear my voice and open up that door that he's knocking on, then the last thing he says, I will sup with him or come in and have dinner with him and he with me. In the ancient Greek, they had three meals a day. 
the breakfast was a big meal. They kept them going through the day. And they had a, like a snacky kind of lunch. And then they had supper. They called it supper. And it was where the family would come together and talk and fellowship and spend time of intimacy together. And that's what Jesus was saying. If you'll just, if, if I'm knocking, if just one guy will open the door, I'll come in and we can sit down and fellowship together. So that's, 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 what, that's where I am. That's what I've been thinking about these past three weeks and how I don't want Compass Church to be just the average layout I see in church. And I know the, you know, the letter, the, the layout I see in church is about the church as a whole. And just like Lourdes is a standout among many, I want our church to be a standout among many. Um, I'd love to see the entire church, and one day it will. You know, every person will bow their knee to the name of Jesus. Um, but that's just kind of what's been on my heart. Now, I have this little book, since this was such a um, downer kind of message. I have this little book right here called The Eagle Christian. And I've had it probably since I was about 18 years old. I don't know. I think my mom gave it to me. Kevin, have you ever read this? You need to re- I'm going to let you take this home. You're going to read this. You can read it in, in 45 minutes. And it tells you, us, how a Christian is related to God's creation, the eagle. And it is the most interesting read. And after you read this, then, you know, you won't be so sad about me calling everybody lukewarm. So, because <laughs> if we can all be this, there won't be any lukewarmness. And so, um, after I think about, you know, uh, the lukewarm church, and, and then it makes me all sad, and I don't want to be sad, and so my prayer goes there. Then I have to read this, because I want to be an eagle Christian. So, Kevin, I'll let you read this, but when you finish it, We'll pass it around. Don't lose it now. I've had it for like 45 years. I really don't. A long time. Um, but anyway, that, that's all I have. I just, wanna, I just want us to pray together that we won't become just the average church, that we won't be something that God won't, that Jesus wants to spit out of his mouth. I don't want to be that. I want, to be, I want us to be a sweet flavor in his mouth. Yeah? Come on, Lord, let's be bold. Okay, um, my struggle at, at work is they need help and they know that they need Jesus, but once I come to them and I start telling them the truth, they back away. They, they don't want to hear it. So, I mean, how can we, as a church, come to them? And I pour my love on them, and I tell them, you know, believe the word of God. Don't have doubt, you know. And they doubt. They, they don't see the action. They don't, I mean, they know it, but they're not acting, acting, you know. So I, I get frustrated, to, even myself. I say, well, why, why don't you come real? To, I tell God, God, be real in their life. Come on, you, know, you could do this. But it's like they're not putting that that energy, that, that, the faith that they need. You know, so how can we reach them? Lord, if only we could reach them, they could come up here and say, 
your love thinks that I would even do. And a word here and there is good. Share a word or share truth with them. But for them to change me to change you is much more effective than, than um, you know, you throwing Bible verses at them. And I think your life speaks for itself and your love speaks for itself and eventually they won't be able to stand it. Like, they stay around you long enough and that spirit in you will begin to pour over onto them. And again, they have their own choice to make. Um, you can't force somebody to to um, accept the word that you're trying to give them. So the only thing you can do is keep doing what you're doing because I know you're doing the right thing. And and just pray that they'll come around. I know that's a frustration for me, Lord, is too, when you've shared and shared and shared with someone and they just, it doesn't seem to go through. And I used to get really frustrated with it until I found this little verse in Romans and it says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And I think so often we take the burden of soul winning and we take the burden of um, turning a person's heart and that's not our job. That's God's job. And that's why when Michelle says, you just keep on what you're doing and you keep on praying, that's our part. But it literally is not up, even to them, really, in a, in a big sense. It's completely up to the God who has mercy. Also, I'll just add, too, that um, there are some that plant. There are some that work the field. And there are some that go and get the harvest. And you don't ever you never know which one you are. You don't ever know which place you are with the person that you're spending time with. You may be the first person to plant into their life. You may be the fourth person to plant or to cultivate in their life. They may have had a seed planted in their life twenty years ago and here you come pulling up the weeds and digging around it and stirring it up again. But the person that harvests that may be someone you don't even know down the line, but you got to do your part. Does that make sense? Yep. So do your part. Just do what you do. What you do. Yep. <laughs> so Keith came to our, uh, our uh, point group, and uh, I was actually going to do this last week on uh, patience. And uh, yesterday, actually. So I, this is still kind of sitting on my heart a little bit. But um, I think with earning, getting people to know God and follow God, is I've got a friend who he's, he used to be Catholic. Now he's an atheist. And I've been working with him for years, since high school. And I graduated in 2009. So it's, it's been a hot minute. So, but it's, it's a patience thing. And if it was up to us, our time frame, I would have done it like that. I mean, done, but we have to be patient and wait on God's time frame. See, he sees time. This is, I heard this analogy actually from a, a video for comic book characters. So you have to bear with me. I'm a bit of a nerd there, but, um, God sees time, how I picture it, kind of like a picture 
we see time kind of as a continually moving thing. We have a past and a future. But God sees it all in one big sheet. So he sees this is happening here, this is happening here, this is happening here, and he sees us going across, and he knows something's about to happen. If you continue to just work with God and know that if we wait on him, he's going to let whatever needs to be done happen. So we just have to be patient and wait on him and not go on our time frame, but go on his. So, yeah, it's frustrating when we see Christians, friends who claim to be Christians, not acting godly. And I can think of a friend of mine right now who would say the right things, be in church all the time, but then weekends would happen and he would just lose his mind. And I remember sitting there talking to a friend and I was like, I know what lukewarm is like because I see this guy and I don't know where to place him. Like, should I go minister to him or should I not because he got him party a lot, but then he would come to small group and just say everything he needed to like a Christian, and it got frustrating. But then I had to sit back and remind myself of the people like um, the Isbells, like Jordan and Rebecca, people who are walking the walk and doing what they need to, to encourage me not to get so focused on that one person that I see, that I miss what else God has been doing through other people in my life and what he is doing. So... Be patient with them, but don't lose sight of the people that you have touched by your actions and your words. Jazzy G. So all you people with friends, I'm 0 for 3 with friends. I've, uh, the thick skin has been developed hard. Three multiple friends, these three friends, I've, they've seen the change in me. They questioned it. I tell them about it, gone, broke up, never friends again. Same thing with another one, a lady friend, everything. Until the moment I came to tell her about what, you know, what is in my life, my God, my Jesus, I don't want it. I'm like, what? You know, it's shocking. But the thick skin is very important uh, for sure. That's what Alan said. And, uh, but, yeah, I strongly, firmly believe this cultivation that we are. I mean, look outside of our world. I mean, the trees do it. You know, the seeds and the planted on the ground and it starts growing. It's all over God's creation. I mean, it's simple. But, um, yeah, I just, uh, I've done my part in them, three. And uh, I probably will never see them again. I mean, if I do cross paths with them. I mean, as long as I'm continuing to live my life, they've seen the difference, so that's it, yeah. I'm just different outtake of uh, friends. So your life is a, is a witness to them. So let it be, and don't change who you are for nobody. <laughs> Anybody else? Good. I want to say Japan was awesome. Thank you. Um, we had a great trip to Japan. My parents are there. Um, it was a long holiday in Japan, so my brother, his three kids, my aunt, and my sister in college were all able to gather and spend five days together. It was so good. But that's not what I want to share about. I want to share about, um, I want to encourage you guys to pray for Japan. And I want to share just a little bit about the mission work there. 
Um, my parents have been missionaries there for 38 years, and patience would be the word that describes their ministry, which kind of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about it. Um, but it's same for any ministry there. Patience is the word to describe that ministry. Um, Japan is a hard, hard country to minister to. It's 1% Christian, and missionaries been there for a long time, but the harvest is so hard. And um, there are successful churches that are just thriving and stuff, but um, like especially in the city where tradition is not so strong. But um, I want to share about my parents. They live in the countryside um, two hours from a big city in the mountains, 20 minutes from the beach. It's a pretty awesome, awesome place. Um, we went hiking and swimming at the beach. Anyway, um, uh, but um, I don't know how much you know about Japan, but it's a group-oriented society, um, which means you don't do anything by your own will. You look at the people around you, like with whatever your group of friends or your family, and you do what they do. Okay, so to say, I'm going to become a Christian, it just, you don't do that. You know, because nobody around you is doing that. For, for us, it's our own choice, but that's not how they think. So, um, anyway, um, Japan is strong in Buddhism and Shintoism. Shintoism is an animistic religion, which means they worship nature. Okay, so it's a blend of those two. And tradition is strong in those religions. And um, uh, so for Buddhism, you have the family altar. And the oldest son inherits the family altar. Um, if you become a Christian, you cannot inherit that family altar. You're kicked out the family. Okay? Um, also, um, yeah, holidays. How do you, do you, you can't go to the community festivals you know what I mean? Like, you're just totally broken away from the society that's a group society when you become a Christian. Also, women of the 1%, I was telling Jazz, yeah, I was a 1% Christian, 10% are men. So as a woman, if you decide to become a Christian, you're basically um, saying, I'm going to be celibate for life. Okay? So... It's a huge choice. It's a huge decision. Most of my girlfriends are single women um, um, because that's what they chose. Um, anyway, so just to give you a picture of it's a hard life to become, be a Christian and to become a Christian in Japan. But my parents, um, they've been there 38 years in a small country church. They have eight church members right now, um, which is a big group. Um, and... Um, and it consists of um, outcasts of society. So a mentally handicapped people, people who lost all family members and had no friends, um, a prostitute, um, drug addicts. Those are the types of people that go to their church because nobody else likes them, and they don't have a group. So where do they go? Church, where an American person's like, welcome, you know? So that's where they go. Um, uh, so my parents fa are faced with people with heavy, heavy issues. Um, yeah, they feel like they have to counsel them, but they don't have the training to do so. So it's kind of, that's a hard situation. Now, as far as their positive ministry, they are planting seeds. Now, in Japan, 
if you say uh, the word Christian, they're like, what's that? Like, they don't even know the word. So, uh, um, so two weeks ago, not this past Sunday, the Sunday before, I was at the church service at my parents' house, and we were, had a whole church, and at the end of the service, one lady goes, so what's a Christian? <laughs> After, like, I don't know, the sermon, communion, everything, and my dad's like, well, um, Christianity 101, you know? Anyway, uh, so that's where, that's where they're at. Um, but they're planting seeds. So when I was a kid, they did a kids' ministry. They bust in like 40 kids a week and did a Bible story. Now, imagine these kids, they go to the city for work. They find me, a Christian, you know, in the city, in the countryside, not so much, but in the city. And they're like, I remember the Bible story back, you know, in my hometown and stuff. Maybe they're a Christian today. Who knows? When I was a teenager, they had a huge youth ministry, about 15 to 20 kids. We would play basketball every day together. My dad would be like, hey, let's talk about the Bible. The kids are mostly in the city now. Who knows? They might go find Jesus. So they're planting a lot of seeds along the way. Um, Their main ministry is community involvement. So they're advisor to the local police department. They're they're involved. like high schools, elementary schools, just like advisors for different groups and stuff, just to get their base known and to show their love and kindness and stuff. So anyway, that is what they are doing. And I want you guys to pray for Japan. And if you ever want to go to Japan, I can connect you to various sorts of ministries as an American English teaching Um, English Bible teaching is the biggest ministry I taught at a church for three years in Japan as an English Bible teacher. That was really fun. Um, And, yeah, several of my students became Christian because we studied the Bible in English. So, anyway, um, pray for Japan. Sorry, that was longer than I intended. We're glad you're home. Glad to have you back. But i got to tell you, we... Like, our heart, who we are, should just be, like, crying out for that. I mean, 99% lost. That's what you said, right? 99% lost. I mean, we should just be crying for that. So, um, for me, I don't, I'm not the judge, but your parents seem like the type that would sit on the judgment throne. (laughs) I'm just saying. That's amazing. I love that. Are we done? Jeremy, Jeremy, what you got, Jeremy? Jeremy's always got something. Put the put the countdown on. He can. <laughs> oh, it's short. Yeah. Just uh, there's something to think about. I think we should be. Something I was reading on back there, me and him were talking while y'all were up here talking. I think as we encounter our friends and try to spread the gospel to them, I think we need to think about how patient how patient God was with us when we were trying to follow him. When we were trying to lead others, we need to be as patient with them as God was with us. Wow. New, new record. 
That's good, Jeremy. Very good. Well, let's pray, and then we'll go. Um, we'll, we'll pray for uh, the lukewarm church, and then we'll pray for Japan. Who? Keith? Keith? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come to you right now just with a burning on our hearts, Father. We just want to see this church become, become not lukewarm, but just have this burning passion for you, Father, and just for your glory in what we do and what we say. I pray. Amen.